This is James Goover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Spring is finally here. Yards and pastures are greening up, wheat is taking off, and trees are in full bloom. This also means corn planting is not far away. Ideally, corn planting should be dependent upon soil temperatures that are consistently above 55 degrees at the 2-inch soil depth. According to the Kansas Mesonet Station in Parsons and Columbus, we are not far away from that in southeast Kansas. Many farms might not want to wait until soil temperatures are consistently warm enough, though. There are plenty of extension publications from other states that say 50 degrees is good enough. The problem is, is that maintained 50 degrees, it would take three weeks for corn to germinate. During this time, the seed would fight fungus, insects, and other creatures. At 60 degrees, the corn will emerge in 8 to 10 days, and will be much more consistent in population and growth. Corn planting rates for full season bottom ground around here in southeast tends to range from 26 to 31,000, with the final plant population at 24 to 26,000. This is about right for our yield expectations. An ideal population is, of course, based upon maximum yield for the field and climate, but there can be some hints that the right population was achieved. Ideally, there should be less than 5% of the corn plants that don't form a full ear due to the overpopulation but also less than 5% of the corn plants with a second ear that nearly is fully formed and contributing in yield, indicating a population too low. Finding that balance can be hard considering every year has a different environment, but many producers can use three to four different seeding rates within an inconsistent field. K-State Corn Production Handbook has lots of information on seeding rates, planting depths, row spacing, and other aspects of planting. As for fertilizer, this spring has been one of the driest in some time, and most corn farmers already have their pre-plant fertilizers applied. Plenty of anhydrous has been injected, even despite the cost. We should now start be looking at starter fertilizers though. For phosphorus starter, some publications I've seen have starter fertilizer most likely being economically beneficial when background phosphorus is below 30 parts per million. This means soil phosphorus can be above the 20 parts per million optimum and still have benefit to starter fertilizer when planting into cold soils. This effect is increased in acidic soils as well. Keep in mind that nitrogen and potassium fertilizer is a salt, and no more than 6 to 8 pounds per acre of nitrogen and potassium fertilizer combined should be emplaced in furrow with the seed. Side placement greatly reduces the salting risk. While corn is just about to start in Kansas, we aren't actually that big of a corn producing state. Last year we harvested 750 million bushels, which is only 5% of the US corn crop. We sure use a lot of corn here though, with our ethanol industry and huge western Kansas feedlots. Last year our average yield was up 4% to 139 bushels per acre. Here in southeast Kansas, our average county yields were just below that in the 110 to 120s. I can't wait to see those perfectly straight and evenly spaced little corn plants neatly in their rows. If you have any questions about corn planting, please give me a call at 620 724 8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Wildcat Extension District Livestock Production Agent. Calf diarrhea, also called scours, is a very costly problem for many producers. Scours are only a symptom of underlying disease that plagues the animal. Dehydration and chemical imbalances are the actual causes of the animal's demise. Several pathogens can cause severe diarrhea. 
The impact of the germs is determined by the calf's age and the integrity of its immune system. If the calf didn't receive the proper amount of colostrum, it would be more vulnerable to the pathogens. The most common bacterial cause is E. coli. It typically affects calves from one to five days old, causing severe watery diarrhea that is generally yellow or white. Clostridium perfringens is another bacteria that can be highly fatal in young calves. It can come on suddenly and some calves will die without showing any symptoms at all. It usually is associated with an increased intake in the calf's diet. If management practices or the weather cause a long interval between meals and a calf consequently overconsumes, the proper environment has been established for the bacteria to grow. There are two viruses that cause scours, rotavirus and coronavirus. They both affect the small intestines. Symptoms include ongoing diarrhea that depletes the animal's nutrients. The coronavirus produces more severe symptoms, bloody stools and increased straining. Two types of protozoa can cause diarrhea in calves, but they have low mortality rates. Cryptosporidia leads to nutrient removal. Animals usually exhibit a good appetite, but still lose weight. Coccidiosis, however, is more stress-related, causing mild to severe bloody scours, decreased appetite, sluggishness, and dehydration. The key is to prevent the disease from occurring in the first place. A good producer should maximize colostrum transfer, increase sanitation, and reduce stressors such as overcrowding or poor nutrition, and vaccinate cows for E. coli, rotavirus, coronavirus, and C. perfringens at six and three days before calving. When dealing with an outbreak, good hygiene, dry conditions, and isolation of infected animals are advised. To address individual animals, correct fluid deficits first, then fix the electrolyte imbalances with powders. Young animals have little energy reserves, so provide an oral or IV fluid containing glucose or dextrose to supplement the energy. A broad-spectrum antibiotic can be used in some types of infections. Antibiotics only work against bacteria. If the infection is viral, antibiotics may prevent a secondary bacterial infection from occurring. It's important to consult with your veterinarian since they will know what diseases are prevalent in your area. For more information on this topic, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. If you are considering starting to raise chickens, once you have determined the breed of chickens you will raise, and if you will start by purchasing chicks or adult hens, next you will need to plan the type of housing you will have for your chickens. The first requirement in any poultry operation is to have adequate housing to provide protection from heat, cold, inclement weather, and predators. A dry, draft-free house with ventilation is essential for the health and well-being of every bird. In the summer, ventilation provides a way to keep the interior temperature at a comfortable level. Ventilation in the winter is also necessary not only to provide fresh air to the house but also to remove moisture 
as an aid in the maintenance of dry litter. For small coops, windows, or vents on one or two sides of the house will usually provide plenty of ventilation. Windows or vents should be placed on sides away from prevailing winter winds. Depending on bird size, space requirements for laying hens will be one and a half to two square feet per bird inside the house. Broilers need slightly less room at one square foot per bird. The type of construction does not need to be elaborate or highly sophisticated. For those desiring to keep their chickens confined, a small run will be necessary to provide sunlight and exercise for the birds. When developing housing for a backyard flock, be sure to construct the poultry coop and runs in a manner that protects birds from invading predators. Depending on bird size, space requirements will be 8 to 10 feet per bird in the run. If you are raising chicks that are a day old to about 6 weeks of age, some supplemental heat may be needed for optimum growth. This will depend on the environmental temperature. For the first week, the chicks should be kept at about 90 to 95 degrees. The temperature may be lowered 5 degrees each week until a temperature of 70 degrees is reached. After, supplemental heat may be necessary only if the outside temperature is extremely cold. The chick's behavior is the first indicator of appropriate temperature in the brooder. Chicks scattered throughout the brooding area giving a contented sound are comfortable. Huddled, peeping chicks need additional heat while those panting with their mouths open need cooler temperatures. Even though the chicks provide an ideal temperature, a small thermometer at chick level can be very useful. Supplemental heat may be provided from heat lamps as well. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Mushroom hunting season is starting, and you may feel the itch to get out and find mushrooms of your own. It is very important that you are 100% sure of your identification before eating any mushrooms, and to not eat anything you are completely confident in the identity of. While there are only a handful of plants that could kill you if you ate them, there are many more mushrooms that are potentially fatal. The most common mushrooms beginners look for are morels, oysters, honey mushrooms, and chicken of the woods, as these all have distinctive visual characteristics. Mushrooms grow in forested areas and on forest edges where the climate stays cooler and more humid and the mushrooms have decaying organic matter around which to grow. The weather is only beginning to warm up, so right now you will be more likely to find mushrooms on south and west facing slopes. As the weather gets even warmer, north facing slopes will also begin growing mushrooms. Be sure to check the rules and regulations of any locations you want to hunt for mushrooms, and always ask permission when wanting to forage on private land. Morels are arguably the most well-known mushroom. Because they are so popular with restaurants, people learn how to identify morels so that they can sell them. The Kansas Department of Agriculture requires harvested mushrooms be inspected for safety by an approved identifier and offers classes every year that train attendees on how to separate morels from false morels, 
Close lookalikes that have a chemical that is metabolized in your body into a compound that is also used as rocket propellant. Yes, really. Note that this identification class only applies to morels specifically and harvested mushrooms broadly. Commercially cultivated mushrooms, most of which will be oysters or shiitakes, do not need to go through the same identification class and can be sold with no restrictions. When harvesting, be sure that the place you're harvesting has no restrictions on the commercial use of anything you take. Places that allow foraging for personal use often ban selling wild mushrooms to prevent over-harvesting. Forage sustainably and take only what you need. Chicken of the Woods, also known as Sulfur Shelf, is a very strange mushroom that lives up to its name. It is a shelf fungus, meaning it forms platforms wherever it grows that start orange in the center and turn yellow near the edges. The colors are vibrant, which differentiates them from other shelf fungi like turkey tails, a non-edible lookalike. When cooked, the fungus lives up to its name, having a taste and consistency almost identical to chicken. Reactions have been reported, however, and everybody's bodies are different, so when introducing a new food like a wild mushroom to your diet, it's always best to cook it thoroughly and consume in small amounts at first in order to keep potential adverse reactions to a minimum. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.